Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Um, you know, Eric, it's you know, it took me a little while to sort of get adjusted after after being gone for for a while on, on kind of an intense trip. But now I'm all kind of discombobulated again. I, I I'm a little confused. I, you know, everything I thought I knew has come crashing down around me a little bit. I, I mean, I was convinced, Eric, that, that just recently I was up in the Arctic and, and that a couple of years ago when I was last in the Arctic that I stood at the North Pole, that I was on top of the globe. But it turns out I've been living a lie, Eric. Oh, yeah? According, yeah, yeah. According to uh, former super middleweight champion. Oh, yeah, he says. Yeah, really? Where's he going with this? I'm so interested. <laughs> um, according to uh, former super middleweight champ Carl Froch, the Earth... It's flat, mm, yes. and NASA is a fake agency, and all those pictures we see are CGI images. <laughs> so, But I'll tell you what, though. He did say, and I quote here, when someone like Richard Branson goes up there and starts doing charted flights, and you can look back on Earth and see the Earth's curvature, I'll believe the Earth is a globe. So I'll believe Richard Branson if you won't believe NASA. And given that Richard Branson says he's going to be you know, making these trips available for like a couple million, I think Carl Froch is hanging out for a bit of a comp trip to space oh. which makes me think that maybe he's not quite as batty as he seems <laughs> okay so it's all just a, a scam to get the free trip okay yeah. uh, that's, uh, what I, that's what i'm holding out for <laughs> uh, i hope it's something like that i i really like to give people the benefit of the doubt and uh, and believe that frotch is just punking us to get attention <laughs> and amuse himself uh, or perhaps to get a free trip out of it because part of my brain doesn't like accepting that people can be so wrong about facts, <laughs> yeah. you know, but exactly. recent years have been enlightening about just how wrong large numbers of people can be about obvious things. Um, I actually got on, attacked on Twitter recently by the apparently large numbers of people who insist Michael Jackson was innocent of all accusations really? and who patrol Twitter waiting for people like me to say otherwise. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know about Carl Frotch. Uh, he might just truly believe the Earth is flat. Maybe not. Maybe it's all a, a scheme of some sort. Uh, but if he does, I guess I just need to take a deep breath and remind myself there are worse things for people to be horribly wrong about. I don't know. And no? <laughs> unfortunately, is this number one on your list of things it's that not. you... It's not. It's number... It's probably... It's not number one. I have, okay. a, I have a number one. But there are but there are lots of people who are wrong about that, too. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a beautiful time to be alive, Eric. <laughs> sure. <laughs> if you say so. And one of the reasons why it's a beautiful time to be alive is every week we produce the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Yes. We've got an episode for you right here and a few things we have, as well as the flatness or otherwise of the earth and the wrongness or otherwise of multitudes of people <laughs> to talk about. Uh, we have a couple of big fight cards to look forward to. As next week, Gennady Golovkin takes on Sergei Derevianchenko in New York, while in Flint, Michigan, on Showtime, Clarissa Shields headlines a triple header as she attempts to win a title in her third weight as she faces off against Ivana Habazin. Uh, we will have an interview as well with one of the sport's very brightest prospects, uh, and we'll take a brief look at the week's news items. But first, we go to the Staples Center in Los Angeles, where on Saturday night, Errol Spence remained undefeated with a split decision win over Sean Porter in a tremendously exciting welterweight unification bout in which the pace really didn't let up at any point uh, over 12 rounds. No, it did not. Great pace to this fight. Uh, and while we both picked Spence to win the fight, you know, without us coming out and making right. our predictions official, um, 
I'm not sure either of us expected Porter to push him quite as hard as he did. Uh, I said if Porter fought an aggressive Sean Porter fight, he right. could make life difficult for Spence. But this was more like he made life hell for Spence at times yeah. in there. Uh, at, at first, it didn't appear as if that would be the game plan as Porter spent the first round doing what he did at times against Danny Garcia and your Dennis Ugas and what we said he absolutely shouldn't do against Spence. And that was stand at ring center and circle and try to box Spence from the outside. But by round two, Porter changed it up and got down to the business of being Sean Porter. He was pressuring Spence whenever he could and, and forcing him to, to dig deep to fight him off. It was Porter's pressure against Spence's relative precision punching. Uh, but it was also constant action as Porter forced the pace. A beautiful short left hand in the 11th from Spence sent Porter's eyes rolling into the back of his head yeah. and forced him to touch the canvas briefly. Uh, but Porter promptly popped back up and started screaming, come on, at Spence uh, in a distillation of the whole contest, really. Uh, and for me, that 11th round knockdown was critical because I found this fight hard as hell to ah. score. And that at least gave it a signature moment that helped me feel comfortable in the end saying Spence won. There, there were just very few easy rounds to score. There was so much infighting and moments of ugliness, and you couldn't always tell in real time which punches were landing. I even scored one even round, which I almost never do. Uh, and I ended up with a score of 115-113 for Spence. The judges' scores were 115-112 for Porter and two scores of 116-111 for Spence, one of which came from Steve Weisfeld, which tells you that even if you thought the fight was closer, that score must yeah. be justifiable, <laughs> or else Weisfeld would not have arrived at it. So, Kieran, how did you score it, and what were your thoughts uh, as the fight unfolded? Well, in terms of scoring, I did, in fact, have it 116-111, and, and yes, uh, I made a note immediately afterwards. I was listening for what's, how Steve would score it, <laughs> and I realized that he had it 116-111, and thus, by definition, I was right. Um, uh, you know, it was a tremendously exciting fight. Um, uh, by the time it old man alert here by the time it finally came on on the east coast i was wondering whether i was gonna have to you know give up and, and pull a go. raskin you can say it i was yeah <laughs> i mean lordy but uh yeah this woke me right up again uh but it was one of those fights where i felt it was simultaneously possible to hold um a number of seemingly contradictory views that it was an exciting fight <clears throat> that a lot of the rounds were as you said very, very, very close. Um, that Sean Porter was performing out of his skin. That Errol Spence was, was experiencing the, the kind of pressure he'd never felt before. And yet, at the same time, to me, uh, all the way through, Spence always felt the more likely winner. And, mm. and you know, by fight's end, before the scores were announced, he felt as if, to me, as if he was by far the, the more likely to be the winner. Um, <clears throat> I think giving him seven or eight rounds seems, seems just right. If you wanted to make it closer... By a couple of rounds, I, you know, and it seems like a lot of folks ringside from what I could tell had it closer. Um, maybe even that knockdown literally making the difference on the scorecards uh, certainly wouldn't have any problems with that. I, I don't know quite what Larry Hazard was seeing. That seems a bit extreme. But yeah. but at the same time, it, again, it depends. As you said, some of those rounds were very close and it does depend what you like and what you're mm -hmm. looking for. And sometimes in a fight like that, it even depends what side of the ring you're sitting at um, as to what punches you see landing. But um, there's a couple of things I noted, um, and one of the things that I noted right at the very beginning, uh, right before the ring emptied, uh, there was a contrast between the two fighters in the two corners, eh? Like, Porter was hugging his dad, and he was looking amped, and, and Spence was just hanging out, and 
looking as cool and calm as if he was about to go for a stroll or something. <laughs> um, I mean, and I think that profound calm is, is how Spence was able to cope with what Porter threw at him. Because um, I think you've got to be calm in that situation and you've got to try and, and think, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and and not allow yourself to be completely thrown off by, by Porter coming at you. And, and the other early thought I had, uh, my mind went back a little bit to um, Lewis Holyfield. I think the first fight when Manny Stewart just wouldn't shut up in the pre-fight instructions in the dressing room about the height of Holyfield's belt line. Right. And he was like, you've got to watch that. You've got to watch it. He's going to hold his belt line really high. And he really tried to put that in the referee's head and that Holyfield was going to come out with his trunks high. Um, and then Lennox came out and his trunks are practically up to his nipples. <laughs> right. And I thought it was a great case of misdirection. I thought a little bit about that in the early stages of the fight because you know some of the talk had been about Spence hinting that Porter was a dirty fighter and Porter defending himself and then Spence just whacking him in the groin repeatedly. Yeah. Um, you, you know, not, he wasn't doing it deliberately, I don't think. It was just that Spence had clearly made the decision early on that the way to deal with Porter's energy and aggression and pressure was to try to slow him down by thumping him to the body. And, and, and then, you know, as it sort of got into some rough houses and a lot of those punches strayed low. Um, so in general terms, I thought, as well as it being a very exciting fight, I thought it was an exciting fight because by and large, each guy did what he does best and did it as well as he could up against that kind of foe. Um, you know, I think Keith Furman, I think it was after four or five rounds, they went to him and he said that Spence was fighting Porter's fight. But mm -hmm. now that I think about it, I think actually everybody ends up fighting Sean Porter's fight, whether they <laughs> lose to him or beat him. Right. It tends to be Sean Porter's fight. He's so physical. Um, it's exceptionally hard to keep him off. He's, he's sort of a, a more rounded, but perhaps slightly less flat out violent version of Ruslan Provodnikov, right? You know, he may not beat you, but the experience is going to suck. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I thought that Porter played to his strengths uh, and in doing so he made Spence as uncomfortable in a fight as he's probably ever been. But at the same time, I thought Spence did what works for him. He used angles when he could. He kept his defense as tight as he could. He used his shoulders well. He worked to the body um, and he fired his punches in between porters, which I think you need to do against Sean Porter. You can't wait for Porter to stop throwing flurries and then fire back with flurries because then you're just going to wait to throw punches because Porter's just not going to stop. So um, I did think there were a couple of times when it looked as if maybe Spence was in danger of cracking and the relentless was actually going to prevail. The fourth and fifth rounds, I thought Porter really put himself at the perfect distance to fire not just one or two three punch combination, but four or five or six um, and it really looked as if Porter was getting in a comfort zone there. And then I thought Spence switched it back out again. And then a little bit towards the later rounds, it again looked to me as if maybe just the energy expended to try and keep Porter off was beginning to tell on Spence, who looked like he was sagging ever so slightly. Um, and, and, you know, until scoring that knockdown and, and, and really changing the dynamic again at the end. And, and it looked as if Porter and Porter's corner knew with that knockdown that that was it. Right. Um, that, 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 had taken their chance away from him but but anyway all of which is to say i thought it was a close fight with a clear winner porter especially clearly elevated himself i don't know how much spence elevated himself simply because his perceived level was so high already but i did think each man really fought as well as he could against the opponent he had in front of him yeah, and I'll just say that the the late knockdown and the strong finish from Spence, uh, we've sort of seen that before from him. That mm. uh, so he's he's shown some late power and he he's shown good stamina now on on several occasions. And I wonder if that all comes back to the calm that you commented on before mm. the fight. That uh, he he 
isn't a guy who really exudes a lot of nervous energy or, or really and waste energy. Um, he, he's a calm guy, uh, confident in himself, and it seems to be translating so far into him being uh, one of those fighters who still has something left at, at the end to pull out yeah. these close wins. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so there was a very swift move, I think, among many on social media and, and some of the commentary team, as is often the case after right after a fight like this, you know, to sort of declare it the fight of the year, or at the very least, a strong contender. It was certainly a fabulously entertaining fight, although, as you pointed, there were also moments of, of, of ugliness uh, on the inside there. Um, with a day or two to think about it, where do you stand on its greatness relative to some of the other offerings we've seen this year? I'm going to be the, the, the hot takesman uh, this there week. There you go. Uh, or, or more like the cold water man. going to throw a little, a little bit of cold water <laughs> on people. Don't get me wrong. It was a very, very good fight. It never struck me at any point as a fight of the year candidate. Um, I should note I was completely off social media and I was mm. watching by myself. So the only opinions entering my orbit were my own and those of the broadcasters. Uh, but when Joe Goosen said in the middle rounds, this is one of the all-time great welterweight fights you're ever going to see. I was somewhat taken aback because uh, it, <laughs> it, it hadn't felt at all to me like a great fight to that point, although it did continue to get better for the most part uh, as it wore on. But um, I thought maybe this is one of those fights that's better in the arena after I heard uh, Joe Gerson I think that's say probably that. true. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I loved the pace of the fight. That was great. But the action itself was a little too sloppy and ugly in that distinctly Sean Porter style for me to fully embrace the fight. So again, it was very good, but to me it was a B plus A minus action fight, not an A or A plus. So sorry to be that guy, but uh, what can I tell you? Yeah. It, it that's didn't why, move. That's why we keep you around, Eric. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for, for all my many hot takes. Yes. <laughs> um, I think that's my second hot take all, all year so far. <laughs> But yeah. Um, so when we previewed the fight, we imagined various scenarios as to how it might pan out and what it might mean in terms of the next fight for the winner, uh, where the winner would stand in terms of the division and pound for pound rankings. What were the circumstances under which either Spence Reporter might fight Manny Pacquiao or Terrence Crawford and so forth. So after Saturday night, Kieran, where do you stand? Has Spence elevated himself into top tier pound for pound territory? As you noted, uh, there wasn't a lot of room up to go. Uh, right. But did he did he move up at all? Is uh, either Crawford or Pacquiao more or less likely to want to face him and vice versa? Uh, or as appeared to be the case with the apparently choreographed post-fight challenge, yeah. is PBC keeping Spence in-house and giving him Danny Garcia next? Yeah, the... um. The line from that Frank and Nasty Sinatra song popped into my head at the end there. As they famously sang, and then you go and spoil it all by saying something stupid like, Danny Garcia, you got next. <laughs> That's not a direct quote from the song, I don't oh, think. Oh, no, no, it's totally, it's totally, it's, it's a very rarely sung verse, but mm, no, it's okay. totally, no. yeah, yeah, definitely somewhere I saw it on the internet. <laughs> um, look, I imagine af after Saturday night, if he isn't already, even if he wasn't already beforehand, <clears throat> Terence Crawford is calling Bob Arum every hour to tell him to get him Errol Spence. Um, is, you know, Spence is a fantastic boxer and he proved it again on Saturday night. But it, I thought that it might be one of those odd situations where you could easily, depending on how seriously you take rankings and how you go about formulating them in your head, you could easily have Spence now number one clearly in the welterweight division and and Crawford number two, but Crawford ahead of Spence 
by a few spots in the pound for pound rankings. Um, and one argument for that would be simply by what he did against John Porter combined with what he's done so far. And we talked a bit about this last week. Um, Spence has done more in the 147 pound division than Crawford has, but you could also argue that as well as he performed, um, and even though he won that fight, uh, I, I still don't think I see a boxer who elevated himself from his opposition the way that I feel like a Terence Crawford would have done. I, I think that Crawford has more strings to his bow. Um, I think he has the greater capacity to adapt, but we still don't quite know that from Terence about Terence Crawford against the elite welterweight opponent. But you know, but the thing is, based on that broadcast on Saturday night. Terence Crawford might not even exist, might as well not exist. I mean, to throw up in advance a graphic of welterweight belt holders and not even include Crawford in that graphic, just allow Kate Abdo to voice off camera. Oh, oh, also, there's the one non-PBC guy, Terence Crawford. (laughs) I mean, come on. Um, You know, when we talked about this last week... I th- I said that I thought a Spence victory was going to make the pressure for a Crawford fight that more likely, but it does really appear that PBC is just going to completely ignore his existence um, or indeed the existence of anyone else outside that stable. It really feels, I mean, I have no inside knowledge, but it really feels to me like that Danny Garcia fight has been set up and agreed and it's ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing is, that would be a very good fight. I would watch the hell out of that fight. I would look forward to that fight. If it was the fight that Spence was taking after Terence Crawford, um, I, I, I mean, if that's what they do, I just without even thinking about making a, a fight with Crawford now, I just think it's astonishingly nakedly cynical. Um, the other guy, you know, and you talked about this where you wonder where he's going um, is Pacquiao. Uh, again, last week I said I thought if Porter won, a Pacquiao matchup might be more likely, but. I don't know. If you watch that on Saturday night, he might think to himself, man, I'm 40 years old. I don't need any of that. Um, and then you add that to the fact that Porter lost. So he'd, so he'd be putting himself at risk against the physical guy, against the guy who lost to Errol Spence. And there's just not that cachet there. Um, you know, Saturday night was a reminder of the tremendous strength and physicality that Porter brings. I don't think Pacquiao needs that at this stage of his career. Um, and then even if he won that, he's still just beating the guy who Errol Spence already beat. So... Um, so I don't know. I don't know what happens with Pacquiao. I don't know what happens with Porter. Um, I wasn't expecting the apparent setup for a <laughs> right. uh, for a Spence Danny Garcia matchup, and I'm not quite sure where that leaves everybody else right now. To be honest with you. Yeah, you know, you mentioned that uh, that graphic without Crawford, and I didn't realize that they that they showed that uh, during the fight because I was fast forwarding through everything mm. that wasn't fights um, because uh, I, I I was watching it all uh, on Sunday morning. I, I was not available to watch it Saturday night, as you know, but the listeners do not, um, and so I just. Uh, there's there's a lot of filler on those Fox yeah, there are. shows, and yeah. so I, I was fast forwarding until guys were getting in the ring, basically. Um, so I missed that, but they showed that graphic once. I assume it was basically the same graphic. Uh, I don't know, six eight weeks ago on some card, and people lost their minds over that very thing that it was without Terence Crawford, um, and I, it bothered me even more. Uh, it was during round 12 of this fight when uh, Joe Goosen, and not not to pick on Joe Goosen, who I think is very good, but mm-hmm. he said, there's no doubt these two are the class of the welterweight division right now as, as Spence and Porter were coming down the stretch, um, which, again, n- <laughs> there is doubt. Nobody thinks that you, you can label anyone the class of the welterweight division without including Terrence Crawford in that conversation. So, and not just leaving out Crawford by saying that, but also he left out Pacquiao who beat Thurman, who beat Porter. So it's just silly. Uh, In a vacuum, Spence versus Garcia is 
a perfectly good fight, as you basically said. Um, But this isn't a vacuum. We have context, and we know that Spence just beat Porter, although it was very close, who beat Garcia, although it was very close. So it's at best a lateral step, and we know that at least one much tougher challenge is out there in Crawford. But I'll say this. I want Spence Crawford. You want Spence Crawford. Hardcore boxing fans want Spence Crawford. It is a fight that does make sense to marinate a little longer. Mm, mm. Neither guy has crossed over to the mainstream yet. It makes sense for them to clean out the rest of the division first and keep building toward it. Um, I'm not sure who Crawford is going to build against uh, if he doesn't have access to, to PBC welterweights. But if you want that fight when it happens to sell a million pay-per-views, I think you're not all that close yet. This might be one where business trumps our desire to see the best Mm. fight the best, and it makes sense to let it simmer for maybe two more fights apiece first. And I think there's a fair chance that neither guy gets knocked off in the meantime, that they're good enough uh, to to get there, even though Spence did have himself a little bit of a scare there on Saturday night. In the co-main on the Spence Porter card, David Benavides stopped Anthony Durrell in the ninth round to regain a super middleweight strap of some trivial alphabet designation. (laughs) Uh, It was an even fight for a few rounds, neither man really gaining the upper hand until Benavides began to assert himself and opened up a cut over Durrell's right eye in round six with a clean punch. Uh, It was a nasty cut in a bad spot right on Durrell's eyelid. Every time the cameras closed up on that cut, (laughs) I winced. I I flat out had to look away a couple of times. Um, I was surprised they let Durrell out of the corner for the seventh round uh, with a cut that wide and deep. Then again, after a timeout in the seventh, when the doctor took a look at it, they let it keep going. Then again, before round eight, uh, they they let it uh, continue uh, again. And at that point, uh, Lennox Lewis said of Durrell, uh, who was clear in clear danger of losing by TKO, he's got to let it hang out. And I wondered to myself, what is it? His eyeball? Uh, (laughs) I, I, And I wasn't the only one who was uh, thrown off by the cut. Uh, Durrell was also. It was clearly bothering him, and it just kept getting harder for him to keep Benavidez off him. Uh, And although the doctor kept refusing to stop the fight, Durrell's corner, with multiple officials on the ring apron trying to get the ref's attention, eventually did. What were your thoughts on the timing of the stoppage, and what did you think uh, about the fight generally? So first of all, it was just another reminder, man, boxers are so freaking brave. I mean, it was clear that Durrell was really bothered by that cut, um, but there was no damn way he was going to admit it uh, to a doctor or to a referee or anything. It was clear that he was sort of indicating to his corner, um, but there was just no way he was going to let anybody else know. Um, He was going to go out there and he was going to take his lumps and... He was going to try to find a way to pull a rabbit out of the hat. And and also, by the way, while talking about Darrell, talk about class afterwards, um, mm-hmm. just the way that <clears throat> he went over and embraced him and the good things he said. Um, uh, so I'll be honest, for the first few rounds, I kind of hated this fight. Um, Benavides came out looking soft, I thought, and he was a bit plodding. You know, Darrell had the better game plan. But also seemed to be a bit more focused on clowning than on boxing. Um, but then, you know, Benavides got untracked a little. He started to let his punches flow. And and then, you know, as you said, that cut just changed the whole dynamic uh, of everything. Um, I don't know what that ringside physician was doing or looking at, to be honest with you. Um, he was, you know, shining his flashlight there. And I, I don't know whether he was just 
looking to see if there were life forms in deep within that cut or <laughs> whether he was trying to see how Darrell's pupils would respond to the light or whatever. And he kept asking me if he could see. I, I mean, I mean, he could see the cut, right? Surely. And and the fact that his eyelid was almost falling off. I mean, I don't know. Look, I, I, I'm all for ringside physicians who were prepared to let the fight go. But yeesh. I mean, it was pretty obvious that Thomas Taylor was trying to get the doctor to stop the damn yeah. fight. Uh, that could certainly have been stopped earlier, be- not just because of the actual cut itself, but because the way it hampered Durrell so badly meant that he took a, several rounds more damage than he absolutely needed to do, um, and, you know, and, and it could have been called. And you could tell by the reaction in the in the, uh, in the crowd when they saw the cut that nobody was going to boo that stoppage because it was pretty obvious that that it was worth being stopped. So I don't know. I was perfectly fine with it being stopped. I was would have been more fine with it being stopped a bit earlier. <laughs> yeah. I'm incredibly impressed with Andre Durrell um, in terms of his bravery and his class and, and all of that. Um, I do feel that Benavidez is by a distance the weakest of the leading super middles right now. I think Callum Smith or Caleb Plant would probably handle him. I think Billy Joe Saunders would clown him. Um, He feels a bit one-dimensional at the moment to me, but he is big and he is strong and he's young. He's very young. Uh, So he theoretically does have plenty of uh, uh, room to grow, as it were. Yeah, he he seems a a bit up and down in his performances. And Mm. so I'm not as sure that he... Uh, ranks but behind all of those guys. I will also add that nobody ever really seems to look great against Anthony Durrell. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, the fact that Benavidez ultimately looked pretty good uh, is is good enough for me for now. He didn't, he didn't jump off the screen at you, but I, I thought his performance uh, was solid enough. But it, just in terms of the fact that they didn't stop it sooner... Uh, even though they did eventually stop it based on the cut, the fact that they let it go on as long as they did somewhat counters my argument that if Tyson Fury wasn't Tyson Fury, his fight gets stopped because uh, Darrell isn't Tyson Fury. He isn't worth a fraction of what Fury right. is to people financially, and they still let it go for, for two plus rounds. I, I, yeah, I'm not sure why they didn't stop that sooner. It was pretty clear to everyone but the doctor that yeah. that, that, that fight should not be continuing. Yeah. Um, uh, so when we looked ahead last week to the second fight on the pay-per-view card, the 140-pound contest between Mario Barrios and Batir Akhmadov, you said that Akhmadov might be little known and he may only have a 7-0 record, but that the guy could seriously fight. This was at least a 50-50 contest, and there was a real chance that Akhmadov would spring the upset here. Um, through four rounds, that didn't look a great prediction, as Barrio showed a lot of angles, great mm-hmm. punch variety, and he forced Akhmadov to touch the canvas with his gloves at one point in the fourth, but then everything changed. It was like that knockdown turned a switch in Akhmadov, and I thought he dominated the rest of the fight, personally, uh, until about 17 seconds left in the final round when a short right hand caused him to touch down again. Um, I thought that last moment knockdown just about saved Barrios's ass. I had the score the same as Marcus Viegas, uh, the unofficial ringside scorer. I had it 113-113 as a result of the knockdown. And without that knockdown, I would have had Barrios losing. And that's even though I picked him as part of my, you know, rising talent uh, draft uh, a couple of weeks ago. But I thought, personally, the official scores were trash. 14-12 for Barrios, okay. That's not very different from 13-13. But 15, 115-111... 
it seems really off. And 116, 111 for Marcus Barrios after that fight. He won eight of eight rounds. I don't know about that. Uh, I I thought Akhmadov deserved that win, um, you know, or at least a draw because of that knockdown. What did you think? Uh, you you were the one who kind of predicted that Akhmadov was a was a real force in this fight. What do you think of the scores, the performances, the way the fight unfolded? What do you want to see next from both both boxes? Just what do you think? Basically? So I. I had the same scorecard as you and Marcos, 113-113. And I really didn't think it was that tough of a fight to score. Only really one or two rounds that felt remotely swingy to me. I thought Barrios won the first four plus the knockdown. Akhmadov swept the next seven. And then Barrios got the 10-8 round in the 12th. Uh, And that one punch with just a few seconds remaining, that's a three-point swing on a round that Akhmadov seemed to be winning. Like you, I thought Barrio stole himself a draw with one punch in a fight in which he was increasingly getting his ass kicked. And instead, it turns out he was already ahead on two cards, and it was Akhmadov who needed to score a knockdown yeah. in the 12th to, for him to get the draw. Um, other than the 114-112, which I agree with you, that's fine. That's just one round different from us. But other than that, yeah, those scorecards are, are disgraceful. And... I don't want to say robbery because just the the sheer final result of Barrios winning, it did end up being close enough to score closely in either direction. But thank goodness Barrios scored that knockdown because without it, he would have won a split decision and that would have been an outright robbery. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, instead, if we ignore the margins on the cards, just the end result is not totally ridiculous, but still brutal for Akhmadov who dug out of a five-point hole and deserved better. Uh, I was very impressed by him. I didn't realize, even from having watched him a bit uh, and having a fairly high opinion of him, I didn't realize what an effective, suffocating pressure fighter he can be. Um, And I take nothing away from Barrios also, you know, against the toughest opponent of his career, with his face swelling up. He hung in there and stayed focused and scored that knockdown in the 12th. He did have a lot of issues, though, uh, down from round five to until the end of the fight. Um, Barrios, you know, and this is easier said than done, of course, but he stopped sitting down on his punches. Uh, Everything was off the back foot. He wasn't stepping into his jab the way he had been in the first few rounds. Just too much conceding ground and failing to discourage Akhmadov. So there's a, a lot there to work on. I think it was probably a great learning experience for both fighters, um, and I'd love to see a rematch, although my hunch is Barrios' team will take the win yeah, and uh, and look somewhere so else. I think so, yes. Um, in the opener, Josecito Lopez stopped John Molina in the eighth round uh, in a fight that looked like it wasn't going to get out of the first round. Uh, Lopez decked Molina twice in that opening round, once from a right hand to the head, once from a left to the body, and that body shot... I'm not so sure Molina even beat the count. He wasn't quite all the way up. I know. Yeah, Yeah. he was still kind of bent over when the ref got to 10. Ref could have waved it off, and he would have spared Molina a lot of punishment, although uh, Molina didn't seem to mind. He showed his usual guts and determination. (laughs) But he went down again in the seventh, and at the end of that round, trainer Robert Alcazar and the ringside physician looked like they wanted to stop it. Molina talked them out of it. And referee Ray Corona warned him, you know, one more big shot and he'd stop it. Ultimately, Corona let him take about three more big shots, but but then he did jump in. So good stoppage in your view or a little late? Uh, and, And any other thoughts about this opening bout? Yeah, they could have stopped it after the seventh, I thought. It, it looked like Alcazar really wanted to. And, and, and even Molina's protestations didn't seem 
it almost seemed like auto drive protestations, you know, like give me another round, that kind of stuff. I mean, it was, it was obvious he was, I mean, there was no indication that he was going to turn it around. Um, you worry about Molina a little bit uh, long term. Um, you know, Joe Goosen said, and it was quite a funny line. He goes, you know, like the thing with Molina is he's got a head like a mastodon <laughs> and he can take a punch. And uh, and that's why I always felt confident sort of sending him into the trenches to be like a, a face first kind of fighter when he trained him. But you worry a bit about guys like that. They're guys whose chins are sturdy enough to take more punishment than perhaps others might and but at the same time whose skills and defenses are shabby enough that they sort of can't prevent that punishment getting through uh so yeah we talked about this a little bit last week when we were previewing it about Molina perhaps being a bit long in the tooth and it's it's a problem because he's sufficiently competitive and he's sufficiently exciting in fights that you don't think oh we should hang him up we shouldn't see him again because he's in there and he and he fights his heart out and he's competitive but man he just takes a lot of punishment um so it adds up it does add up. It does. And, and you do worry about that. Um, yeah, so it wasn't an especially artful opener, but it was two guys with certainly better than average skills and both of them with Hall of Fame hearts. Um, and those kind of fights, they can be, to be fair to everybody involved, they can be very difficult to find the precise moment to mm. stop it. Um, yeah. You know, especially when you've got guys like Molina who keep throwing punches, uh, even when they're clearly getting cracked really really clean it was a little late stoppage for me but not egregiously so i would guess that even uh even eric there thought that it was probably a decent <laughs> enough stoppage right yeah i'm i'm with you that it uh could have been stopped a little sooner it should absolutely not have been stopped any later yeah yeah all right so that's when you know it was stopped late <laughs> right <laughs> all right very quickly there was one other somewhat significant card this past weekend uh, on friday our favorite young heavyweight daniel dubois womped overmatched ebenezer tete dropping him twice stopping him in the first round in the in the uk uh eric uh you called this pretty much on the nose last week uh tete was way way out of his depth here did we learn anything we didn't already know about dubois or was it just over too fast uh, yeah, I don't think we really learned too much new, um, but it was still a good performance and a good result. And Tete, while not actually, you know, being any good, uh, also wasn't <laughs> coming to lie down. He, he was mm. trying in there. He wasn't one of those guys who, you know, the moment he takes his shirt off and you get a look at his physique, it reveals that he didn't train and he's just collecting a paycheck. I think he came to fight and came to win. He isn't very good uh but you know he's a live body and Dubois took care of him in the first round and that's all you can ask for uh it's it's clear uh that Dubois is a dangerous offensive fighter we kind of knew that already uh but you know one more example here one more demonstration of it and for now that's good enough yeah there you go all right uh time to look ahead to next weekend's fights uh two major cards for us to consider and we begin with the one that my turn for at least a hottish take here uh, may ultimately have the greater historical significance as Clarissa Shields, who 21 months and five fights ago was defending a 168 pound title, then dropped down to win, defend and unify 160 pound belts, is now stepping down one more weight to take on Croatia's Ivana Habazin for a pair of vacant alphabet belts at 154 pounds. Uh, if she wins, she will have won world titles in three different weights more rapidly than any other boxer in history. Saturday's bout with Habazin will be her 10th as a professional, whereas Vasily Lomachenko and Kosei Tanaka did the same in 12 contests. Uh, she will also be only the third pro boxer to have won those three titles by going progressively down in weight. The other two were now Fujioka and Amanda Serrano, so all women. 
But here's the big picture question. Is this, as a chance for you to throw some more cold water here, uh, is this <laughs> as significant as is being sold? We know that the women's game is in its relative infancy, even though it's getting much better and stronger. The talent pool is relatively shallow, even as it is getting deeper. At stake on Saturday are two alphabet belts, including a laughable diamond belt. If this were a men's fight, we would indeed scoff at its seriousness as a title fight for that reason. Um, and as good as Shields is, we generally, I certainly, shy away from comparing anyone to Lomachenko. Um, so are we overselling this? And in the process of overselling this slightly, are we doing a bit of discredit to Clarissa Shields as we risk a bit of backlash against the fighter who is really just a terrific fighter and as I think we both agree, deserves her quote self-designation right well if we're comparing her to lomachenko which we are not but if anyone is uh you know vasily lomachenko who fought orlando freaking salito in his second pro fight if we're doing that then yes we're overselling it but otherwise i don't think we are this is a pretty monumental accomplishment you know the quality of opposition and the depth of the divisions as you noted in the women's game still doesn't compare to the men's game um and Quick side note, but uh, our, our recent uh, interview with Ed Brophy, where he said the Hall of mm. Fame will start start out inducting two female fighters each year. I think that's too many. I think the standard mm. for getting in is going to drop off very quickly. Uh, but anyway, uh, Clarissa, you know, she she has not been racking up all these titles that she's won against world beaters and household names exactly. You know, Nikki Adler, Hannah Gabriels, Christina Hammer. These are very solid fighters that she's beating for her belts. But there are holes to be poked if if you're so inclined. But just looking at the numbers, they are staggering. To win titles in three divisions this quickly and to keep going down in weight to do so, it is absolutely historic. It is absolutely unprecedented when you combine those two things together. Uh, And so, yeah, if she beats Habazin, it will be an achievement worth celebrating. Um, And speaking of which, I think the general expectation is that, well... Duh, of course, Shields is going to beat Habazine. <laughs> Shields is the quote, uh, or at least arguably the quote. Habazine is someone people aren't familiar with. So what can you tell us, Kieran, about Ivana Habazine? What are her strengths and, and what risks does she pose to Shields? So she comes in with a record of 20 and 3 with six KOs. Um, the three losses have come when she stepped it up against recognized belt holders, including our friend Cecilia Brakus, who beat her in 2014. Um, here's the thing. Of her other 20 opponents, um, 15 had losing records and 10 had no wins at all at the time that they fought her. Um, The record of her last five opponents is 27, 27 and 2, which is some way short of the caliber of opposition that Shields has been facing. Um, That said, she has skills. Her style and her game plan is based around a good defense and a very jab-heavy offense. And she's also a switch hitter. She's able to move back and forth from orthodox to southpaw um, easily and effectively. So basically, this is Vasily Lomachenko against Terence Crawford. Uh, Is that (laughs) overhyping the fight now? Um, But but, uh, look, she she does have fast hands and feet. Um, They've been highly effective in... In, in blunting her opponent's offense, her last two opponents managed to land an average of two punches per round against her over a total of 22-minute rounds. Um, but that quality of opposition is a huge factor. Um, you know, the closest she has come to meeting somebody of Shields level is Brekus, uh, to whom she lost. But... 
there may be that one factor in her favor, and, and you've already talked about it. We, we mentioned the fact that Shields is not only looking to win a world title in a third weight, but that she's doing so by going down in weight in three consecutive fights. Even Serrano and Fujioka, when they drop down to, to win weights in lower weight, to win titles in lower weight divisions, they mostly paused and they had a couple of bouts at each weight class before moving down. Shields has gone 168, 160, 154. That's a huge ask of herself. Um, you know, even before her last fight, and, and we talked about it on our weigh-in show, you know, Christina Hammer was already taking jabs at Shields and her ability to make weight. And, and that was part of the storyline going into mm -hmm. the fight. And that was at 160, not 154. So... Is there, you talked about what a tremendous accomplishment it would be if she does it. Is there the danger that by doing that, she's going to, Shields is going to show up and just have nothing in the tank when the bell rings? This is one of those questions where I can only make an educated guess. Uh, but yeah, I would think so. That risk exists. We've seen male fighters drain themselves yep. to drop in weight. Most famously, Oscar De La Hoya, Roy Jones, mm -hmm. Chris Bird, fighters we've discussed plenty before in this context. I don't know if the physiological challenge is any different for a woman, and I really don't want to get myself in trouble by speculating remotely about that. Um, one thing Claressa does have in her favor is that she's young. She's only 24. As any of us who used to go out drinking in our younger days and then try to have even two drinks in our current washed state can tell you, the human body can take the abuse better when you're young. Uh, so look, only Claressa knows how she feels. I assume she wouldn't have agreed to fight at 154 if she didn't feel she could do it comfortably. But, yeah, it's something to be wary of, something that might open the door a crack for that Habazine upset. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're almost ready to give our predictions for the main event. But first, a reminder that you can win cash and prizes by making your own predictions with the DraftKings Showtime Boxing Pick'em. It's absolutely free to enter. You just go to DraftKings.com Showtime, pick the winners and the methods of victories for all of the fights on Saturday's card, and you can win your share of $5,000. Plus, there's the overall leaderboard for the year, uh, where yours truly is currently sitting in 27th place, despite nice. missing a week. Uh, but enough about me. This is about you, the listeners, and uh, this is about swag bags, of course, because it's always about swag bags. Uh, anyway, DraftKings.com slash Showtime. Get in on the action. All right, now it is time to reveal our picks. I come in with a 59-53 lead after we didn't make any picks on the last Showbox show due to Kieran's travels. But I'm sure you would have taken Matisse to upset Dutch over, right, Kieran? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was totally going for that. I was going to pick a cut on a cut as well. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, such a shame. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm up first, uh, and I can't go against the quote. But the knockout or decision question is interesting. Yeah. Claressa only has two knockouts and nine wins. She's obviously not a massive puncher. But as she's quick to point out, if she was fighting three-minute rounds, her knockout percentage might look very different. Uh, anyway, she'll have a clear size advantage here. Uh, Habasin was a welterweight not so long ago. She's mostly struggled against top opposition in her career. I think that Shields will have more power than we're used to seeing out of her now that she'll be at 154. I think she can take care of business in one-sided fashion. I think she wants to give the Flint, Michigan fans a show. I'm saying Clarissa Shields, KO5. Ah, interesting. Um, and yeah, I agree that the X factor is whether being at 154 gives her extra power or saps, saps her strength. And my suspicion is that it's the former. Um, you know, she and John David Jackson are a good team. She's a professional. She's not stupid. Um, and they will have approached this methodically and professionally. And I actually wouldn't be surprised if she benefits a bit from the delay in the fight because it's given her a bit of a longer period to ease down in weight. Um, 
you know, and I just don't see Habazin having the authority to have punches to keep keep shields at bay. Um, and whereas a year or so ago, I might have been able to picture her frustrating shields or keeping her off balance with her footwork, Claressa's improved her overall game so much. Um, I don't know that Habazin's got very much that's going to be a real puzzle. I don't think she's as good as Christina Hammer, uh, who's a fast-handed, jab-heavy boxer with good feet. And we saw how Claressa just dismantled her, um, and, and Christina's a, a, a bigger opponent. Um, so, so, yeah, I agree with you. There's no issue over who wins this. Uh, does she pull out a rare stoppage is the only question. Um, I think she does. I do think that the two-minute rounds are going to frustrate, that there's going to be a couple of places where she's going to have her ready to go, and then she doesn't because the bell rings. And I think that's going to happen a couple of times. And then finally, she's going to end up stopping her, not necessarily knocking her down and out, but certainly stop her standing up in round nine. All right. Okay. So uh, two other fights on the card um, in one heavyweight. Jermaine Franklin makes his third appearance on Showtime this year as he faces off against Czech Pavel Schauer. Um, Franklin is undefeated at 19-0 with 13 KOs. Looks great, right? But his previous two Showtime outings this year have failed to impress. He outpointed veteran, long-incarcerated former cruiserweight Rydell Booker and then arguably got away with one last time out against career journeyman Jerry Forrest, uh, none of which squares with Franklin's considerable boasts about his potential or the hype that had accompanied him into that first appearance on Showtime. It seems really strange to say this about an undefeated heavyweight prospect but such has been the nature of his performances when he's been given the chance on Showtime. Is this already his last big chance to make a good impression and get another network day? And what does he need to impress? And can he? My instinct is to say that, yeah, it's his last chance. He must impress this time. Three strikes and you're out. But he's an undefeated American heavyweight. Uh, so yeah. as long yeah. as he remains so, uh, I don't think the fact that he's American is likely to change. Uh, so it's really about whether he can remain undefeated. <laughs> no matter how lackluster his performance is, he will remain attractive to people. He will get televised opportunities. So, you know, there's a case to be made that the old cliche, win this one, look good next time, that that, that mm -hmm. still applies here, uh, that he just needs to win to keep the train on the track. But obviously a big knockout win would go a long way. Uh, Shower is nothing special. Uh, he's there to be hit. He's 36 years old. He's fairly slow. His lone loss came in the first round against Philip Hergovich, who is one of the better current heavyweight prospects, so no shame in that. Um, but the fact that he has been stopped in one round once sets a bar for Franklin. You know, we, we know that this guy can be stopped and can be stopped early. So therefore, Franklin is kind of expected to do it. Uh, if it goes the distance, even if Jermaine Franklin wins every round, I don't think it advances his career at all. Uh, mm. But again, as long as he scores the win, another TV date probably awaits. No. Also on the card, another undefeated prospect, but one who, in contrast to Franklin, has repeatedly impressed, and that's 22-year-old Philadelphia welterweight Jerron Boots Ennis. Ennis is 23-0 with 21 knockouts and 11 stoppages in the first round. He made two appearances on Showbox last year, and he's up against Argentina's Damian Daniel Fernandez on Saturday. Kieran, who is Fernandez, and will he threaten Ennis' undefeated record? Uh, he's older than Ennis. He's 30 years old to 22. He's been a pro for two years longer, 
But he has 10 fewer fights. He's 12 and 1 compared to Ennis's uh, 23 and 0. This will actually, and perhaps randomly, be a second consecutive fight in Michigan after his previous 12 were all in his native Argentina. He's a busy boxer. He throws a lot of punches, but he doesn't land a lot of them. Uh, against uh, Juan Balmaceda in February, for example, he threw a remarkable 78.9 punches per round, way above the welterweight average of 56.8. But his total connect percentage was just 17, which is far below the division average of 30%. Um, he's got good upper body movement, and he likes to throw to the body. Uh, he's a good boxer, but Ennis is better. He's a good body puncher, but Ennis is better. He can crack, but Ennis can crack harder. Um, Fernandez is good, but Ennis, Ennis feels like he might be special. Um, Fernandez may extend him a couple rounds, or he may not. But I, he won't make this to the final bell. Uh, this will be another KO win and probably earlier rather than later for Jerron Boots Ennis, who is, I think, one of the brightest prospects in boxing right now. Um, but you know what? Don't take my word for it. Let us talk to the man himself. Uh, we are very happy to welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast the undefeated and exciting prospect, Jerron Boots Ennis. Jerron, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hey, what's up, y'all? How y'all doing, man? We're doing good. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Jaron. And uh, before we get into talking boxing, uh, I mean, look, every interview you do involves questions about boxing, right? Uh, so uh, you're from Philly. I'm from Philly. Yes. Let's start with some Philly sports talk. Uh, big win by the Eagles on Thursday to keep their season on track. How you feeling about their chances this year? Uh, oh, you yeah, know, it, it was a good one. Uh, I think I think the Eagles going to be probably about like 11 and 5. I think they're going to end up 11 and 5 to make the playoffs. Okay. I could live with yeah. 11 and 5. Where, where did you fall on the debate over whether to keep Wentz or Foles? Did they make the right decision? I, I actually like uh, Foles. I think Foles is more a little bit more seasoned to me. But and I think Wentz get hurt too much. Right. I, I feel true. like, but I don't know. To me, I think Foles is a little better, but Wentz is young and hungry, so he's going he gonna to always get better. So I think in the long run, it's going to be, I mean, uh, Wentz going to be better. Yeah, that's that's how I feel. Keep keep the younger guy. But uh, all right, I hope your prediction comes through. True, I'll be I'll be good with eleven and five in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So this is you know obviously the, your first appearance on our podcast, and and viewers with Showtime is just starting to get used to you. Um, so we're known for the hard hitting questions here. So I wanted to to ask you a real tough one. Um, why boots, man? What is boots all about? Uh. My nickname growing up was supposed to be Boops, B-O-O-P-S. But when when I came, when I was in the gym, with my dad, everybody thought I was. They thought they was, that my dad was saying uh, Boots like the shoes. So we just changed it every since. I kept it like that. <laughs> okay. It, it, it fit. It fit perfect. <laughs> there you go. Obvious follow-up question: Why Boops? <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Why Boots?" Why, why boots uh, with a P? What was that all about? Uh, I don't, that was my nickname that my mom gave me. So I don't, that was, that was up to my mom. You gotta ask my mom. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is it preferred that we call you Jerron or boots or you don't really care? Yeah, you call me boots, you know, it don't matter. Whatever. Okay. Boots, boots. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Uh, so then, Boots, you are 23-0 uh, and 0 with 21 knockouts, yeah. uh, and you've won uh, 10 fights in the first round. You're on a 13-fight knockout streak. How important is it to you to not just win, but 
to be exciting and fan friendly and rack up those those knockouts, especially at this phase of your career as you're just starting to attract fans and attention. Yeah, I'm like I'm young and I'm hungry, so I I gotta be exciting for the fans and I gotta get the fans what they want to see, and that's what they want to see. Uh, uh, people having fun, and they want to see you get a knockout too. So they want they want to see everything in one, and, and that's where I am. I give you everything in one. I I can box, I can uh, move, I can fight softball, orthodox. I can give you speed, power, whatever you want. I got it, and I feel like I feel like that's what the fans love. So I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing. Absolutely. And so the knockouts are just, they're not necessarily that you're, uh, you're setting out to, to knock everybody out. It's just one of those things that that's happening and, 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 and you're happy when it does go down that way. I mean, we, we don't go in there looking for it, but as soon as my, my dad gave me a go, I'll go, I, I go <laughs> oh, get it. Right. Talking of knockout guys, I saw you post a tweet recently of yourself with Brandon Lee, uh, and you guys were obviously on the card together in Broken Arrow the other week. Yeah. And, and you're both in a similar place, right? You're undefeated KO artists in the welterweight division. Um, we just saw Brandon score a second round KO a week or so ago. Um, what is your relationship? Do you have a relationship? And is there a friendship? Or do you see yourselves as potential rivals down the road? No, no, that's my, that's my boy. Uh, I think he's okay. going to fight at 40. Uh, okay. Because he, uh, he, he fight like catchweight fights, like 42, 43. He's going to fight at 40. And I, I'm gonna take. He's gonna take over 40. I'm gonna take over 47. That's my little brother. Okay. All right. Good. So you you guys are tight and and not in the same division uh, at least for now. So that's uh, that's good. You can steer clear yeah. of each other. So just as you were really kicking into gear and and stepping up your level of opposition and and appearing on Showtime, your career was forced into a hiatus for for eight months as a result of a promotional contract dispute. Is that completely resolved now? And and are you happy with the state of your career right now? Uh, I'm I'm happy where I'm at. I just I want to thank Showtime for putting me on, and, and I'm gonna just go ahead and go in there, and put on the show, make a statement on Saturday night, and let know, let everybody know that, that I'm here at 147. Right. What was it tough to go that long without a fight? Like, were you getting antsy, or was the eight months not not that difficult to get through? Uh, no, I stay in the gym. I stay working, stay training, stay running. So I that took a lot of stuff off of it. So and okay. that kept me focused. Right. Hey, look, and I know you don't want to look past your opponent on Saturday, but what what kind of a timeline in your head? Do you have a timeline for where you want to be at different places? I mean, you're still really young, but you've already got 23 wins. You, you're knocking guys over early. Do you Are you starting to feel the need now to start finding opponents who are going to take you rounds? What sort of progression are you hoping for over the next year, a couple of years? Uh, well, at, the, at the Saturday night, I'm, as I do my thing Saturday night, uh, we we are looking for the bigger and and better names, but it's not my fault. Right. We call we call for everybody that's top fifteen guys with the names and they not they not answering back and they not taking a fight or they ask for more money more money and we giving it to them and they, not, they still not taking it. So it's not my fault. I'm I'm just fighting people that's that's in front of me and I'm gonna keep winning until I get to the top. So speaking of the the people in front of you, um, I'm curious uh, what what your thoughts are on your opponent coming up uh, uh, on this show on Showtime. What what do you know about Damian Daniel Fernandez? What what kind of fight are you expecting? Uh, I, I don't really know too much about him at all. I just okay. We just got the we got the opponent, and, and I said yeah. And we, uh, I don't I don't look at opponents. I'll break them down when I get in the ring within ah. 30 seconds. <laughs> and it usually it usually happens that fast that within 30 seconds you can pretty much figure a guy out yeah i just i body body language and like faints and stuff like you, that's how you break them down mentally 
Gotcha. And finally, finally, before we go, you know, obviously Saturday night in LA, a huge fight in the welterweight division. Errol Spence uh-huh. beating Sean Porter. I, I don't know if you saw the fight, but you know, when you watch fights like that, that that's gotta be like an inspiration. Do you find picture yourself thinking, man, in two years, three years, that's gonna be me. I'm gonna be in that position. I'm gonna be fighting on pay per views in front of like twenty thousand people. Yeah, I, I can't wait until until it's my turn to, like you said, fight in front of. Uh, millions of people, TV, the arenas, everything, preview, everything. I, just, I can't wait, wait to be a preview star and take over boxing. I'm doing and I'm doing it slowly but surely. I don't know if you're doing it that slowly, dude. You're knocking guys out pretty, pretty well. You're making a good name for yourself. Hey, look, um, you are definitely on the right path to be heading that way. You are. I'm not just saying this because you're here. You're one of the most exciting prospects in boxing right now. We are looking forward to seeing you on Saturday, and I hope we get to talk to you a lot more on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Boots Ennis, yep. thank you so much yep. for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate y'all. Make sure y'all tune in Saturday night. It's going to be a great night of boxing. You bet. Thank Absolutely. you, Absolutely. Thanks, Boots. All right, see you. On the same night as the Showtime card over on DAZN from Madison Square Garden, Gennady Golovkin returns against Sergei Derevyanchenko. And look, there's been, I think, no bigger Golovkin fan and booster over the years uh, than, than me. But it all feels, I don't know, man, tell me if I'm wrong, but it feels to me that Gennady is at an odd crossroads in his professional life right now. And really, through no fault of his own, he is 39-1-1, one and, one, and you will find plenty of people who would have no problem making the case that he could and perhaps should be 41-0. and 0. Um, Amazingly, it's been seven years since he made his US and HBO debut against Grigor Proxa, and he's barely put a foot wrong since then. He's become one of the most popular and bankable stars in the sport. He's surely a Hall of Famer, and yet... Two of his last three fights have been mismatches, this one feels less than compelling, given that Derevianchenko has already come up short against Daniel Jacobs. And while his arch-rival Canelo Alvarez's 2019 will be A-list contests against Jacobs and Sergei Kovalev, Gennady will have only this fight and Steve Rolls to look back on this year. Am I wrong, Eric, in thinking that Gennady suddenly almost finds himself on the outside looking in a little bit here? And if so, how does he correct that at this stage of his career? Especially if... Canelo is true to his word about feeling that he's done with Golovkin and he just doesn't want to fight him anymore. Well, well, that last bit is still a big if to me. I think there's mm-hmm. a chance that Canelo is continuing to just string Triple G along and tell him it'll never happen, but that he actually deep down still does possibly intend to fight him again once he's seen clear slippage in Golovkin. Right. Uh, that, that's possible. But if we're operating under the assumption that that third fight never happens, then... Yeah, Golovkin is in a tough spot where he's just fighting to prove he's still the best of the rest. Uh, But that means potentially challenging fights against guys half a generation younger than he is, like Jamal Mm. Charlo or Demetrius Andrade, fights that aren't worth huge money. What makes it sort of interesting for Golovkin is this possibility of Canelo leaving the division altogether. And he's moving up to 175 pounds for this one fight. I don't think he'll stay there, but it's possible he'll settle at 168 and be done at middleweight. And that would mean Golovkin could seek to prove he's number one at middleweight without needing to go through Canelo. Um, It's not the most lucrative path. It's a path without super fights, but it gives Triple G a goal anyway. Um, You know, it's it's like what Boots Ennis said to us just moments ago. You can only fight the guys in front of you. Uh, Gennady has Derevyanchenko on Saturday night. 
he has to win and try to look good and remind people why they've been so excited about Triple G so often over the last seven years or so. Um, but, you know, then again, if he wins and looks a little washy doing so, maybe there's a silver lining. Yeah, maybe Canelo is interested again, if that's how it goes. Um, but, uh, yeah, focusing just on, on Derevyanchenko, uh, despite, uh, as you pointed out, the, him losing to Jacobs, He's no mug. Uh, he's a legit opponent and a real measuring stick for Golovkin. So how do you see the Canelo issues and associated frustrations affecting Golovkin? And is there a danger that he'll be sufficiently distracted or deflated for Derevyanchenko to have a shot at victory? I don't think he'll be distracted or deflated. Um, it'll be, he might be mad. Hmm. Um, and I actually think <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> Mr. Alvarez, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Um, I, I think Gennady fights better when he's mad, um, when, you know, when he's got a chip on his shoulder. Um, you know, that classic example is when he battered Curtis Stevens in sort of like what was his nearest equivalent to a what's-my-name fight. You know, it's his, are you serious? You respect box fight. When um, he was just really mad at Stevens. Um, I do think when he feels he has something to prove, when he's feeling disrespected, is often when he is at his best. But there are some wild cards here. Um, it's only a second fight, I think. Yes, yeah, his second fight with Jonathan Banks in the corner. Um, we still don't know how that change is going to work out. And there is this other element um, that I thought you expressed very well when we first discussed this matchup a few weeks back. You said, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but you said something to the effect that this is the first time for a while that we've seen Golovkin against this level of opponent. Right. You know, that they've either undisputably been A-level guys, Jacobs or Canelo, or mismatches, Steve Rolls or Varnish Martirosian. It's been a long time since we've seen Golovkin against that B, B-plus level kind of guy um, who we used to have to spend a lot of his time fighting. Um, so Derevianchenko is a really good yardstick in that respect. You can actually make the case that he's better than a lot of those guys that he was facing, than Macklin or Murray or Rubio or Monroe or Giel or a lot of those guys. Um, and he fights well in the pocket and he hits hard. So if, as I think most of us suspect may be the case, Golovkin has indeed slowed and is indeed easier to hit, um, and it's not just a function of his simply fighting better opponents, Derevianchenko is absolutely the kind of guy to highlight that. Um, and while I think... I think the slippage would have to be more than I thought it is for Derevian Chenko to pull off the upset. Um, I can certainly see a situation where he ends up putting him through hell. Um, and, and yeah, like you said, I can also see a situation where at the end of it, um, if Gennady does emerge victorious while appearing tremendously vulnerable, that Tom Loeffler will be arguing, wow, this was all planned because how else are we going to get Canelo back in the ring? Which was, of course, what Abel was, was Sanchez would argue every time after Golovkin looked, uh, looked a little rough in the ring. So um yeah, we'll see. I, I, I'd I, be surprised if there's an upset, but I can see if Derevianchenko gives him a really, really hard fight, um, yeah, it could very well be the sign that what we think might have been a decline in, Gol in Golovkin is indeed a decline in Golovkin. Hmm. All right, there's a couple of other contests of note on the card. In the co-main, Ivan Baranchik looks to rebound from his competitive loss to Josh Taylor in May against Grab Gabriel Bracero in the 140-pound contest. And undefeated Kazakh super middleweight Ali Akhmadov looks to extend his record to 16-0 against Andrew Hernandez. Uh, do either of those fights or indeed anything else on this card catch your eye? Well, as we know, uh, I like being a little ahead of the curve on guys named Akhmadov. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, from what I've seen, this Akhmadov uh, is another prospect worth watching, 24 years old from Kazakhstan. Uh, but 
not sure how much we'll learn against Hernandez, who tends to be sturdy. You know, he's gone the distance against some good fighters, but he's ultimately a club fighter. He's there to get Akhmadov some rounds, not to win. Um, I like Baranchik, too. He did indeed acquit himself well against Josh Taylor. I'm not sure how much Bracero has left at age 38. This mm. is a card where all the favorites are big favorites and all the underdogs are big underdogs. Uh, I will tune in for Golovkin, Derevyanchenko, for sure. But the rest eh, might get Sunday morning fast-forward relegation. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, a few news items to look at. Uh, we kicked off the podcast with a British super middleweight saying odd things. And we also have a British super middleweight doing what seems on the surface to be an unwise thing. Nigel Benn, famed middle and super middleweight of the 1990s, has announced a comeback at the age of 55, 23 years since he <laughs> ended his career with a pair of losses to Steve Collins. Uh, that was 10 months before I started on the boxing beat. Holy I've, been, I've been doing this for more than 22 years, and uh, he's never fought on my watch. Um, and it isn't just some random musing either. He has a fight date, November 23rd. He has a location, the Resorts World Arena in Birmingham, England. And he has an opponent, 40-year-old Saki Obika, who seems like a dangerous opponent for a 55-year-old man who yeah. hasn't fought since back when I was in college, uh, which, <laughs> mind you, I'm old. That was a long time ago. Uh, Kieran, I know Nigel Ben was a favorite of yours in your younger days. I'd imagine you must have some thoughts about this. I do. Uh, look, credit to the British Boxing Board of Control for refusing to sanction this. But I actually hadn't realized there are more. there's more than one commission in the UK. And so apparently the fight is taking place under the auspices of the British and Irish Boxing Authority, of which, I'll be honest, I had not previously heard. Um, ben does insist that this is one and done and that he just feels unfulfilled and that he needs closure somehow. I, I don't know how one more fight 23 years later gets him that closure, especially if he loses. Um, but I guess that's not for me to judge what a person need, does or doesn't feel. Um, but Beaker seems a terrifyingly dangerous opponent in the circumstances. Yeah. Um, uh, and what does it say about the difficulty that boxers so often have uh, returning to normal life that a man with a career of Ben had a terrific career um, can still not feel any closure, feels the need to do this. Um, mm -hmm. The one thing is, I guess, that I'm sort of feel okay about is you've got to figure the referee's going to have a hair trigger in this fight. Um, if there is any sign of the 55-year-old guy being in trouble, he's going to pull that trigger. Um, but hey, maybe Ben will win. But I, I don't know. The whole thing just feels. I don't know. I, I guess you can, you know, make the case that it's great. He's come through all his demons. He's in fantastic physical shape. He just wants this one more outing to close the book. And who are we to pontificate on it? And maybe that's all true. But it does feel sad and weird and not right, even by boxing standards, frankly. All right. A few other more conventional fights were formally announced this week, a couple of which were already known to be in the pipeline. Uh, you and Al Bernstein discussed the rumored Erickson Lubin to Roll Gaucher matchup, and that has now been confirmed for October 26th on Showtime. The Deontay Wilder Luis Ortiz rematch is now finally and officially a thing, uh, set for, again for November 23rd. Alas, not on Showtime pay per view, but Fox pay per view, which is a personal disappointment for you and me. Um, its co main will be Leo Santa Cruz against Miguel Flores, which will presumably be a personal disappointment for our BFF Gary Russell Jr., who attempted to go to Santa Cruz into a fight with a bizarre video in which he kind of sort of threatened his dad. It was very weird. Um, uh, Callum Smith will be defending his super middleweight belt against John Ryder on that same date, November 23rd in Liverpool. And Dimitri Bivol 
will be fighting in just two weeks, fortunately, now knows who he'll be facing. Um, in a sign that capitalism won, Eric, the Russian light heavyweight will be paid to punch Lenin in the face. <laughs> Lenin Castillo. Um, uh, any thoughts on that assortment of matchups? Uh, not a lot to say about Bivol's fight or Smith's fight. Uh, those are not exactly marquee matchups. Uh, Ryder lost closely in 2017 to Rocky Fielding, so I don't fancy his chances against Callum Smith. Hmm. I do have something to say about Gary Russell Jr., and that's that I think this is all a bunch of fuss kicking about nothing. Uh, <laughs> I didn't take it as an actual threat. It's just a, a weird video, sort of trash talk and goading gone wrong, but... You know, I don't get people who were actually offended or bothered by it. It was it was like Yo Mama jokes, uh, except, except it was Yo <laughs> Papa Yo in this case, right. right? But, you know, Yo Mama jokes are not really meant to be taken personally. You know, if you get bent out of shape because someone tells you how fat Yo Mama is, sight unseen, uh, well, go join the Flat Earthers over in that corner of the Flat Earth that's filled with people that I don't have time for. Uh, anyway, I'm getting a bit off track. Uh, I did think the Santa Cruz comeback that his dad just thought he was Rico Ramos was actually pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Yeah, I find I found the whole thing uh, more strange and amusing than yes, like something strange. worth getting up in arms about. Um, I'm glad the October 26th Showtime card is official. That's a solid one. We'll have much more to say about it in a few weeks. Um, and Wilder Ortiz, not on Showtime pay-per-view, that's certainly a bummer for the two of us. But I get it. The Fox marketing machine is powerful. However, so is the Fox pay-per-view broadcast time-wasting machine, as yes. I touched on uh, just a bit earlier in the podcast. I would love to see them streamline their broadcast significantly and they get the main event. Yeah, it's, uh, you, you can get the main event in the ring before midnight on the East Coast, uh, instead of, you know, needing all 32 of your broadcasters to chime in seven yeah. times a piece during the undercard. I am biased, of course, when I say this, but I think viewers are in better hands with Showtime. But Fox has the fight. Uh, Steven Espinoza has said it ultimately didn't make sense for Showtime to go crazy overbidding for it. He's also said Showtime boxing is fine and fights for 2020 are already being made. Um, so, you know, we, we've seen the network have a down year before due to PBC taking fights elsewhere and then bounce back just fine. That seems to be what Espinosa is saying is happening in 2019 and 2020. In the meantime, whatever channel has this fight, uh, I do suspect I will be tuning in for Wilder Ortiz too. Indeed so. Although, yes, possibly tuning in the next morning. We will see. <laughs> right. We will see. Yeah. Come on, tighten it up, Fox. Come on. All right. Okay, <laughs> that will uh, do it for another edition of the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Uh, many thanks to Jerome Boots Ennis for joining us. That was fun. Um, uh, be sure to check out Showtime Sports and Showtime Boxing social media channels, YouTube, Facebook, all the things that the young people love for digital assets in the build-up to next weekend's card from Flint. There's a short piece with our buddy Boots, and also a multi-part digital feature on Clarissa Shields called Rise, which charts her, well, Rise, from Flint <laughs> to being the quote, and um, what her hometown means to her. Uh, we will be back next week with our da -da -da -da, 50th episode as we look back on Shields Habazin and Golovkin Derevianchenko and look ahead to the heavyweight debut of Alexander Usyk, among other things. Until then... Thanks for listening.